No, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll cut this part out. Yeah, no, we have a we have a woodpecker uh, happening. Woodpecker situation. <laughs> <laughs> this is a first on acquired. Dan's gonna take care of it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early-stage venture fund in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I'm a general partner at Wave Capital, an early-stage venture firm focused on marketplaces based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. Today, we tell an episode that in our initial Season 5 planning calendar, we had as an IPO episode. And then uh, that was pitifully canceled, and we were just going to tell the crazy story of the antics that got it here. But now it's shaping up to be a tried-and-true acquisition episode for us. So here on this episode, we will dive into the existential question of if WeWork, a once $47 billion company, can be saved by SoftBank's effective acquisition of the company. And we are going to try to accomplish two goals. First, to dive into the history of this company from the very beginning. And second to try and see the core economic forest through the undergoverned trees and understand precisely the position that the business is in today. Listeners, Dan's face during all of this is <laughs> priceless. If only we were a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to the only appropriate way that we know how to tell this story is with the expert help of Axios's Dan Primack, who has been meticulously and astutely covering this company for several years. Welcome to Acquired, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform 
They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. And now, on to WeWork. All right. On to WeWork. Man, we were thinking about how to frame this and talking with Dan a little bit before. And, um, you know, I think what we decided to go with, which is true, is like, this is a tragedy. This is like yeah. a Greek tragedy. Particularly yeah. for thousands of people who, you know, by the time people listen to this might have lost their job. I mean, within hours of when we're taping this or a day within when we're taping this. Yeah, yeah it's like, uh, you know, I don't know, the Peloponnesian War or something like the <laughs> outcome is predetermined and the actors are just caught up in forces beyond themselves minus so. one actor who gets a lot of money <laughs> and i guess gets an island in the peloponnesian island. yeah right <laughs> whose grandchildren i'm sure will have which which uh, greek uh myth mythology mythological character is is adam newman well uh was there a greek mythological character who who just got to to walk away w- with all the riches and, and leave all the responsibility behind i don't remember that there was yeah. usually a moral in the stories wasn't there <laughs> listeners we sit here on thursday october 24th in the morning 10 a.m eastern time uh, so you get a sense of where we are in this uh, currently developing yeah. tragedy yeah indeed well, all right, let's dive into Act One, the rise of WeWork. And to talk about WeWork, you obviously have to talk about the um, protagonist, question mark, of this, Adam Newman. Who is Adam Newman? Self-styled uh, hero. Self-styled hero. Uh, so Adam, as many folks probably know, he was born in Israel. He's Israeli. His parents were both doctors. His parents divorced when he was seven, and he ended up living in 13 places over the next 15 years which is actually like pretty crazy. And probably a lot of that goes into the ethos behind WeWork, including in the US. He spent a few years living in the US, then came back to Israel, and he spent a number of years living on a kibbutz in Israel, which is like a rural sort of communistic farm. Uh, he was dyslexic, uh, I presume is dyslexic, but nonetheless quite smart. He tested into the Israeli Navy Academy, Naval Academy growing up, became an officer, and he served in a kind of elite unit in the Israeli Navy for five years. After that, he moves back to the U.S., to New York, to live with his little sister, Adi, who was actually Miss Teen Israel. No way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and she was a model in New York. Uh, and Adam, I guess, had always wanted to come back to the U.S. and to New York. Um, they lived together in the city, and he went to business school at Baruch College. And his goal was getting out of the army, just like many folks in Israel, wanted to become an entrepreneur, wanted to start a company. And so I, I think this was probably while he was in business school or shortly afterwards. He, he has his first great startup idea, perhaps inspired by his fashion model sister, Collapsible women's heels <laughs> oh, yeah, i forgot about that yep. <laughs> yeah uh pretty amazing i actually couldn't find the name of the company dan did you, did you remember oh, God, it i don't remember it no and it's killing me now no but that's exactly what it was yeah, yeah. it was i mean like <laughs> amazing that uh unfortunately didn't work for reasons that are lost to history but undaunted adam goes on and he starts his next company the next company is called crawlers with a K. And <laughs> crawlers, true. this is true. Now, remember, Adam, I mean, f- folks, listeners probably have some image of Adam right now. Um, he actually does have five children now. Yep. Uh, at the time, he had no children. And Crawlers was a baby clothing company. And the unique insight innovation that they had, this is maybe going to presage we work here, is they had the, the technological advance of built-in knee pads in pants so that as your children were crawling around on the floor, <laughs> they were falling on the floor or yeah. falling on the floor. Uh, this Danny, sounds like you a, probably speak yeah. to this. Like this is a real Absolutely. problem. 
It sounds like a Kramer thing. But it's, it's also, like, it, it's a little bit New York. Like you think of the era, both of those, like collapsible heels, you know, baby clothes. Like you think of New York in that time from an entrepreneurial sense. It wasn't, you know, there, there was all this complaint, you know, there's not much tech, quote unquote yeah. tech coming out of New York, but a lot, whether, whether you want to call it fashion, apparel, consumer, consumer yeah. products. I mean, that's also the Warby Parker era, et cetera. That, totally. That's what was yeah, we should, we should set the time frame here. This is mid 2000s when all this is going on. So just pre-financial crash. And yeah, tech in New York was like, there was Union Square Ventures there, yeah. but and there was media, media, tech. media, there was yeah. an ad tech, media Tumblr and ad tech. had done yeah. well or was was rising. Was I mean, I guess was Foursquare around yet? Probably, yeah. But, but it got so much publicity in I part because it was one of those earlier. Maybe it wasn't around yet. Yeah, one of those early around. New York companies, yeah. New York tech companies. Maybe Etsy was, but like these were not. People weren't building like real tech companies in New York. Um, well, this <laughs> we will continue on that theme. Whether here. we work is or not, yeah. Yeah. So it's right around this time while Adam is trying to make crawlers work that he goes to a party and he went to lots of parties. Uh, in fact, he goes to a party at his own apartment. And uh, as we were doing the research here, Dan, I don't know if you saw this or remember this. Um, I guess Adam had a habit. This must have been summertime of in the parties that he would throw in his apartment. He would just walk around without a shirt on. Uh, <laughs> that I don't know, although there's a photo of him from like two weeks ago walking down New York Street without his, well, his shoes, shoes on, on. <laughs> which is insane in Manhattan, but was. Yeah, so. No shirt, no it shoes. It was like within two hours of the, the board uh-huh. asking him as CEO. It's possible they took his shoes. We don't know. <laughs> uh, so Adam is shirtless at this party and a guest, a friend of a friend, shows up and meets meets Adam in the elevator going up to the apartment. And that man's name is Miguel McKelvey. Now, Adam, I don't think we've mentioned yet, is six foot five. Miguel is six foot eight. So maybe they were like the only people who could see each other in the (laughs) elevator. (laughs) And Miguel had a similarly interesting background. So he grew up not in Israel, uh, not on a kibbutz, but in Oregon on a hippie commune. uh, Wait, both WeWork founders have their origin stories from commune? And it absolutely, when we get further along, absolutely makes sense when you think about what WeWork tried to become. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Miguel was born to to a single mother, lived in this collective of five single mothers and their children. He had four sisters, were not biological sisters, but this commune was 10 people, five mothers, five children. Later there was a little brother uh, that came into the picture about 10 years later, but that was that was how he grew up in this collectivist rural commune outside of Eugene, Oregon. He ends up, he was very smart though, is very smart, goes to Colorado College for university, spends a couple years there, then ends up transferring back home to the University of Oregon, which is in Eugene. Uh, he does two things there. One, he plays basketball. Uh, he's 6'8". He, you can't wait. And Oregon yeah. has like a pretty good basketball oh, team. Yeah. Like, he was like legit. And um, two, he studies architecture and he gets his architecture degree. Hmm. So this is all starting to come together here. And it's going to come together even more. He graduates. And in um, true, you know, sort of free spirit fashion, he moves to Tokyo after graduation. And because he has a friend over there, he's like, hey, you should just come like hang out in Tokyo. So he goes, remember, SoftBank is going to enter the picture uh, here, you know, in a little bit. Uh, and in Tokyo, he starts his first company, a company called English Baby, <laughs> which <laughs> amazingly still exists today. We'll link to this no in the way. show notes. Yeah. Did it merge with crawlers? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. No. Uh, so uh, Miguel was a co-founder. He was not the CEO. The company ended up moving, spent a couple years in Tokyo, ended up moving back to Portland, Oregon. So it's still based in Portland. And English Baby is best described as like MySpace plus Duolingo. Uh, so this is again like early to mid two thousand. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, it's probably not a bad idea. I think they were inspired by like 
do you guys remember growing up like this concept of you'd be like uh, your schools would help you become pen, pen pals, pals. Oh, with yeah. Yeah. like students in foreign sure. countries? I think that's what kind of inspired that. They wanted to do that on the internet. So like learn, help no, foreign students learn yeah. English, yeah. you know, with friends in other countries. Yeah. So the tagline, which is still there on the website today, the motto of the company is learn English, find friends. It's cool. <laughs> kind of amazing. So after that, Miguel works on that for a couple of years. And then he's like, you know, I have this architecture degree. I should use it. I also, he's also kind of always had this dream. He talks about this. He was on How I Built This uh, podcast. He always had this dream to kind of move to New York. So he just picks up, moves to New York, and he joins a small architecture firm in Dumbo in Brooklyn. And this is, uh, there were two architects there, and he was working as a draftsman for these two architects. And they had one major contract, which was the build out of the American Apparel retail stores all across the country. Mm. So Miguel gets drafted in as a draft and basically this was when the you know era of american apparel yeah. they're just rolling out in a huge way yeah. kind of like we work would all across the country open up all these stores all with the same aesthetic that would come to sort of inspire we work here to, to bring it full circle uh, uh just before flying out to do this episode i walked past the empty space in seattle where the american apparel store used to be <laughs> oh, and man. was more recently filled by glossier's pop-up which is just like to bring it the most full circle. Oh my god! Yeah. Are you are you are you implying there might be some empty WeWork spaces soon? No, I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, so it is this man that walks into the elevator and meets Adam at this party in this probably would have been like 2007, maybe two th- early 2008 in New York, and they get to talking at the party, and Adam it turns out is looking for office space for his burgeoning hyper growth company Crawlers. And is talking to Miguel and Miguel's like, oh, yeah, like I'm an architect like I like, you know, I'm into I'm doing all this commercial space. And Adam wants if to you can wait eight years. My company, the company I'm working for is going to collapse. There'll be storefronts yeah, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> uh, and so Miguel's like, dude, don't go. Don't go looking for office space in Manhattan. Like that's stupid. Come to Dumbo. Rents are cheap here. It's super awesome. It's really hip. You're going to like it a lot more. So he convinces Adam to move into the same building that his architecture firm is in Dumbo. And this is 2008. The financial crisis is happening. Rents are super cheap. Uh, there's you know blood on the proverbial blood on the streets in New York. I mean, I was there. We all remember this. Real estate is plummeting, and these you know two entrepreneurial guys they kind of cook up this idea. They're like, "There's some empty floors in this building that we're in here in Dumbo. What if we convince the landlord to let us take over one of these floors, and then we can stuff some more people into it and like make the arbitrage on the rent." And they decide this is a good idea, these two new fast friends. And so they do it. They convince the landlords, like, well, I can't move this floor anyway. They give it to them. And the idea is this is going to become like Airbnb for office space. And maybe the better analogy, though, is uh, there's a Forbes article a couple of years later in the early days of, of WeWork. And they say, sort of like Airbnb, but maybe a better analogy is like an airline operator. Because hmm. really what they're trying to do is take a physical asset and squeeze as many people into it, just like coach on an airplane. And mm. it would turn out, I think the financial dynamics of this business look a lot more like an airplane operator than they do like Airbnb. But anyway, it's actually a great idea. Like very quickly, the space gets filled up. They list it on Craigslist. And they're like, hey, we've got desks here. They decide to call it Green Desk. They think like, 
this is going to be eco-friendly. That's what's going to appeal to these types of folks that are like, you know, new age entrepreneurs. They care about the environment. They, they start marketing. Didn't they only like stock environmental products? So it's like all seventh generation sort of like CPG stuff throughout the... I think they might have. They, they used only recycled desks. And then the kicker is, I, I, I'm sure this was probably fake, but they were like, we are powered only by wind power. <laughs> in How? Dumbo? In, in a Dumbo. converted building in Dumbo? They yeah. changed their own grid? All right. <laughs> hey, they're entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurs. Um, Throw a windmill on top of the building. Yeah. So uh, I'm but, sorry. I'm just I'm trying to think of Brooklyn and I'm trying to identify in my mind the, the first windmill I've seen there and I'm still trying. So <laughs> it was the Dutch, you know, they put the windmills in the in the <laughs> New York when they when they settled it. So like I said, though, it works great. Like there are all these people that are getting displaced from their traditional New York finance, you know, media, what have you jobs. And they're either starting businesses or they're freelancing and they're looking for stuff like this. And so the Craigslist postings that they're making are just getting all this demand. And within, I believe within a month, they have the space like pretty much booked up. Then they start taking some more floors in the building. The landlord owns a few other buildings nearby. They start doing this in the other buildings and it really works. Wait, so this is Green Desk, not This, this is not WeWork. WeWork. Did this something is bad Green happen Desk. to Green Desk or did they just morph? No, something great happens to Green Desk, which is two years later, the landlord says, man, this is like becoming a big part of my business. And he, unclear to me if he offered to buy or they offered to sell to him, but they buy, the landlord buys Green Desk from Adam and Miguel for $3 million, which is pretty great. So this yeah. is 2010. They raised no investment? They, I believe, raised no investment. Now, they had a third partner who was a guy, I believe, named Gil, who Miguel had worked with at the architecture firm. Mm. And I believe Gil, at this point, just takes the money and moves back to Israel. He was Israeli. But Adam and Miguel, they make like a pretty bold decision. And this is 2010. Remember this. Like They just made probably at least a million dollars each. They could be living large in New York at this point in time. In Dumbo, at least. In Dumbo, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and man, to invest in Dumbo real estate in 2010, like oh, yeah. you would have made it yeah. killing. But they say, no, we're going to double down. We think that we've learned a couple things from Green Desk. We think that this product has some form of product market fit. Let's take this across the water into Manhattan. And so they go, they decide to restart the company and they want to go do this same concept in Manhattan. But they've learned one of the key things they learned is that actually this eco-friendliness thing, <laughs> like it sounds good, but that's not why people showed up. People showed up because what they were really doing was they were selling a culture. They were selling a workspace feel design culture. And I think this is totally true. Like Dan, I don't know if you'd agree. I, or I not. think I you know I mean I think they were selling, you know, if you think about freelancers back then or people trying to start coming they, they were selling the coffee shop is what they were yeah. selling without having to go and buy coffee and, and yeah. there was actually a desk that's what they were selling because that's yeah. where you would go and probably with worse wi-fi at the time so. yeah well i think regis and iwg is going to come up in a minute but again this is not a super new idea the idea of no it's not i look in 19 i'm going to really date myself now in 19 like 94 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Kendall Square, where MIT is, I was uh, working on a startup newspaper at the time, and we rented an office space. And the big thing that that had was it had a common receptionist and, and, a, and a mailbox. That was mm. huge, right? We could get mail to us, and yeah. somebody would pick up the phone and would direct it to us. So, I mean, that was very much the early version, but that general idea, and there was a bunch of different, basically, conference rooms, and every company had one. Yeah. But I I bet, though, it probably didn't feel... It felt probably kind of pretty crappy. Yeah, space, it did. Right? No, it, fe it felt like, basically, we were in a very large cubicle with a better... Win with a window. Yeah. yeah. 
So this is an age-old business, this subdividing real estate, basically leasing, taking on a long-term liability where you rent out space for some low price because you're taking it in bulk. You subdivide it up, and then you rent it for a higher price in a and in this term and in this case for what we work would become and, and have some common shared services, which is you know the you know particularly if you're a two-person company, you don't want to have to deal with somebody answering the phone or how do we get you know broadband Visitors hooked up or who's or- gonna do we have to hire somebody to take the trash and all and 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 get make sure the coffee machine is filled every morning. Yep. Yep. And I think. Just to hit on this one more time, because I think this actually is a big difference from WeWork and, and everything else. What they did is they did that and they made it feel like you were like at a real place, not like you were at some budget, low rent. It's like, like English Baby, right? It's yeah. cool. That's, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah it was cool. cool. It was cool. And there's multiple interviews with early WeWork members that said, yeah, I was working on a startup. It wasn't going well, but like my parents could still come to the office and they felt like I was doing something real. Like I was a success. Like there was, you know, I was in a place. Oh my gosh, look at all these great desks and computers and a receptionist. There's like, this energy here. Yeah. Ostensibly something was working. Ostensibly. Yes. Ostensibly. So, and I think at this point in time, something really was working. People wanted this. So they had to come up with a new name. So Dan, I think you know the story of... Uh, I've heard rumors of the story. <laughs> Adam's never said it directly to me. Uh, the, the rumors are that, that Adam was partaking in some stuff he would later partake in on planes. And, and that is when the name came up. <laughs> this uh, time on a couch as opposed to a, an airplane seat. I know. Well, maybe he was on a couch on his private jet. That's possible. Of that's, course, that's fair. That's totally fair. We're referring to... Um, you know the the reporting uh, that came out in the last couple of months that Adam apparently smoked marijuana, which on shocked shareholders, sh- shocked, shocked, shocked shareholders, because apparently his major investors had never met him. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so they they needed they obviously needed a name to replace Green Desk, and they come up with WeWork. So this is like kind of an amazing entrepreneurial story. What happens next? So they start shopping for real estate in Manhattan, a lease that they can take out on. They're looking for a whole building that they want to do this. They want to go big. But even with the two-ish million that they have between them, that's not really enough to get, even in 2010, a lease on a whole building. And they want to be in like real hip part of town. They want to be in Soho. They want to be downtown. Hmm. So they're going around. They're like go into all of these i don't even know how it works when a building's up for lease it's like sort of an auction or like whatever I, I it have is no idea it's it's market by market I, yeah. I, know, I know in new york it's like one of the craziest ways you know in new york when you're looking for an apartment you hire a real estate agent like that's how nutso the real estate market yeah. there so i'm sure there's extra complications when you're looking to lease a whole building a whole building yeah so while they're at a few of these whatever they were they were like moments where lots of people who are interested in buildings would all be in the room at the same time. So they're at one of these and they meet a Brooklyn-based real estate developer named Joel Schreiber. And he takes a shine to these guys. He's like an established pretty big time real estate developer and they know they need some more capital. And so they kind of throw out something to him and say, hey, we need some funding for what we're doing. You think this is a good idea? Um, how about you invest at a uh, $45 million valuation? And he says, sure, I'll buy a third of the company. Which, by the way, just, I mean, again, go back nine years. I mean, when we, you know, nothing that's under a billion dollars anyone pays attention to. That was a, and for a startup that didn't yeah. exist, that was an enormous that's amount. That's an enormous of, amount of Huge valuation today. at time. Well, yeah. that, <laughs> it is, it is. But even then, I mean, just so absurd. This, this is audacious. The ex- <laughs> yeah, audacious, fair. But this is the very first example of Adam looking around. Like, if this were a tech company, then what they would have gone and done is raised $500,000 on a $4 million premium right. valuation. What Adam did was say, oh, no, no, this is not that. 
like and also we're not going to approach a traditional tech vc type person so you pitch something unfamiliar uh that's completely different to someone that's not playing the same game as everyone else and you get a non-tech investor in a non-tech business at a non-tech valuation and boom very boom. first time this yep. playbook has been run 15 million dollars in the bank and so they take out a lease for a whole building in soho they start doing the renovation so there's the lease but then they have to renovate this and turn it into we should a be work. clear why it kind of makes sense that that you should feel like your 15 million dollars is safe here normally when you're investing in a tech company you're buying like laptops and then you're paying salaries and in this scenario you're getting something of value this longish term lease so that like at least if the business goes kaput then this major investor owns a third of a, a, a valuable right. lease yep and presumably, you could repurpose that building and rent it out for yep. other things. Which, of course, by the way, as we go on, is in theory the 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 concept in part behind WeWork's kind of massive valuation, which which makes what's just happened that much more <laughs> that much more nutty. So they start renovating this building floor by floor, doing the and and I believe this. We'll see if we can find some pictures. WeWork as we know it today, like this was it. Like they. The, all the aesthetic, the glass walls, the communal spaces, like they had this nailed kind of from their Green Desk days from the beginning. So they start doing... Plus beer taps. That was very important. Tap. That like, yeah. like in the early days when you hear about a WeWork, that was the first thing you hear. They have beer taps in the yeah. office. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> IWG does not have beer taps. It's like the lowest my cogs. It's the, the highest delta between value and perceived value that you could imagine. Or I guess Fair. between cost and perceived value. Huh. So as they're finishing each floor in this building, within one quarter of each floor coming online, they're at 100% occupancy. So they're like, oh man, this, this is working. They start running the same playbook on other buildings in New York. And Adam has a, has a great quote on this. He says, during economic crises, there were these empty buildings and these people freelancing or starting companies. I knew there was a way to match the two. If he had stopped there, that is like a brilliant <laughs> entrepreneurial insight. He has one more sentence, though. What separates us, though, is community. <laughs> so even back then, even in, you know, 2010. Uh, well, I'm going to was... defend him on that for a quick second, which is, and we talked about this, like, go back to the Green Desk days and, and to your friend who said, oh, you know, my parents came in and it looked like something was happening. Like, these freelancers, they weren't necessarily working with each other, per se, on the same project. But again, working next to someone, it's the difference between working alone in like, you know, you could rent out a one office office, I guess, somewhere, right? And you're alone yep. completely yeah. with the door shut. There's people around. There's an energy that yeah. makes you work more. It's the same reason why there's like even today questions about is it better for people to be in an office compared to, you know, all working remotely all the time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Again, he's not wrong, but it is a... But it does lead to some problems. He's not 100% right either. So 2011, this is actually really interesting. I was surprised by this. The next year in 2011, PepsiCo takes out a bunch of desks in that first Soho WeWork and starts putting some of their remote New York City-based employees... Huh. In the WeWork. I thought that was a much newer phenomenon in WeWork's business model. I thought That's so too, it but it was from... actually from the very beginning hmm. um, that big corporate clients were also saw the appeal of this. The next year, in July 2012, this catches the attention of a number of venture capital firms, including a uh, storied venture capital firm Benchmark, Benchmark Capital. And in the summer of 2012, they lead a $17 million Series A in WeWork at a $97 million post-money valuation. So a nice step up from like the original seed <laughs> round, which was crazy to begin with. Uh, and again, back in 2012, you know, a Series A at a $100 million post, like that's a significantly higher valuation than Benchmark gave to Uber yep. in Uber's Series A. Kind of yeah. crazy. 
And uh, uh, in Forbes, Bruce Dunleavy gives a nice quote uh, where he flew out to New York to see what was going on. He said, it reminded me a lot of eBay when I first met them in 1997. There was something going on at both that you couldn't quite put your finger on. And I think this is an early uh, early precursor to a lot of WeWork, which is there's something valuable here. You can't quite put your finger on it, and thus it's hard to value. And and that sort of gets taken advantage of all yeah. the time. Now, all that said, like everything up until this point, Dan can feel free to disagree. It all makes pretty much sense. No, I don't disagree. I think yeah. it did. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. Even this seemingly crazy investment by Benchmark, as we stand today, like that's a great investment. And there was like, yes, there was like, is this a tech company? Is there is this just a real estate company? It is, but we'll, we will come back to this benchmark investment and then the subsequent investments that in the background is that was going on. You know, you talk about the valuation, the part that didn't get reported at the time, none of us ever see is the actual governance terms that are sitting yeah. behind that valuation. Yeah. Is, do you know if that was happening at the Series A already? Well, had I, I don't know for sure, but I don't. I, I believe Newman, I mean, Adam Newman, even at the time of IPO, owned a remarkable amount of this company. For example, compare, uh, Travis Kalanick was, I think, owed, owned like 6% of Uber when he mm-hmm. got booted, around 6%. Yeah. Adam owned a third of the company. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he still, I mean, after all the soft bank money, et cetera. So he he, he controlled this thing uh, even in that early day, those early yeah. days. Well, and it's wow. interesting, you know, Adam, of course, had Miguel as his co-founder. I believe, well, now it's now obfuscated because they have their shares in an LLC, but I believe Adam always had a greater economic percentage of the company than Miguel. Um, if you remember back to Uber and Travis, Travis was not the founder of Uber. No. It was Garrett Camp. Travis was sort but of- But Adam had a bigger piece than Garrett had of Uber. I mean, going uh, forward. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, well, because Garrett and, and then Travis ended up splitting. And, but yeah, like yeah. there was some delusion. Like Travis didn't start in the same way as like, I am solo founder of this company. No, again, I mean, and we'll get into this, but I mean, control was important to Adam. And, important. and in every way, control really mattered. Yeah. Yeah. So after that investment, things continued to work well. They're opening lots of lo- lo- locations in New York. I think it was right around then that I remember the Seattle WeWork opening yep. uh, where we were, Ben and I were there at the time. They were opening. There was definitely in San Francisco, yep. a number of cities around the country. Expansion keeps continuing. They start to attract the interest of the financial community. So they raise... I believe three more rounds over the coming years led by investment banks, by Jeffries and JP Morgan, chief among them, but also from Goldman Sachs. And they start pumping quite a lot of money into the company on, on short order. And so by 2014, the company now is valued at $1.5 billion and is kind of quite large at this point. Yeah. And how much do you think had to do with the fact that they were New York based and not San Francisco based at I this think, point. I, I would think, oh, you mean in terms of the, the leads? I, I think two things, New York based, but also think about that. They, they are still basically a real estate company. Or if you are, if you are Goldman Sachs, if you're Jeffries, if you're JP Morgan, you have giant real estate investments. You have whole yeah. teams that are dedicated. They know that, you know, uh, some sort of, app or some sort of, you know, machine learning, something, something, yep. they've got to put a lot of faith that the founder knows what they're doing with this. They felt they knew what they were doing. This, yeah. is, this is them. This is real estate and it's on their block. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually true. And, and, um, I believe by 2014, WeWork had become the single largest lesser of new available commercial square footage in New York city. Like anybody like think right. about like all of the real estate investment and property developers in New York, 
WeWork was the largest. So of course they were attracting attention to these folks. And it goes and it goes back to what you said earlier. You know, the, remember also what they are investing in. You know, an, an app company can disappear just like that, right? There's a yep. scandal or it doesn't work. There's no product market fit. Worst thing that happens here is you end up with a shell company that's got, as you said, all well, the real estate, commercial real estate in New York right. City. That's the worst case scenario. There are, you know, th- that that's pretty safe as venture yeah, capital investments. Go. Right. You know, Goldman, JP Morgan, they're going to be super happy to take over those leases <laughs> if something goes sideways here. And let's think about how you, how you might make that investment and arrive at a $1.5 billion valuation at this point. Is someone doing a discounted cash flow? Like, is, is someone actually saying, well, if they continue growing at this rate for X years and we're looking at our uh, net operating margin and that we think that there's some chance to generate a billion and a half in cash flows? I, my get, oh, I don't want to say. I guess I would hope so. I have so little faith that people do that or really <laughs> do that and don't just come up. I, there is a big part of me that believes, and, and you guys can feel free to disagree. That people come up with a valuation and then they back their math into that valuation. <laughs> if the first one doesn't work, they'll come up with another way to make the calculation go. But look, but there there was some reasonableness to it, right? Because you think about WeWork, the the issue was always they had to spend a lot of money up front. Their upfront capital costs a to to lease the buildings, but also to do the build renovation, out. right? The it it out, costs yeah. money to because yeah. they were doing full almost demo inside of these things almost down to you know the equivalent of studs and then rebuilding them inside that costs a lot of money and if you got a 20-year lease you are theoretically you're gonna you know depending on the building you'll get to break even at year three or year four at 70 80 percent occupancy and that's yeah. when you're really in the money so that's how you're you're planning it yeah you know and it's interesting i hadn't quite thought about this till now as we've been going through it i think you could argue dan that like the valuations for the tech venture capital community look a lot like what you said but i got to imagine you know goldman jp morgan Jeff, they don't do this they were looking at the value of this real estate and i strongly suspect having friends that were at some of these places on real estate investing teams at the time they probably had big theses about like those years call it 2010 to 2014 were years to go big on investing in commercial real estate in major metropolitan areas. The, the, the counter argument would have been even at the time would have been, okay, we're, we're in an economic recovery at the time, arguably boom by 2014, 15. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're right. So the floor, you know, floor 30 on sixth Avenue, that's, there's got a, it's got an intrinsic value to it, but we work has decided that they are going to rent it out to short-termers for the most yeah, part. Yeah, maybe yeah. some Pepsis, but short-termers. And they're going to spend a fortune renovating it when it was already an office building, right? Yeah. Generally, most of them, maybe not the one in Soho, but most of them were probably already office buildings. Could we have done better just calling Pepsi, calling somebody else, splitting the floor in half and basically keeping the infrastructure exactly the same, maybe with a new coat of paint? Yeah, maybe they could have. So the net of all this is in June 2015, WeWork makes a really key hire. They hire a man named Artie Minson, who was the CFO of Time Warner Cable. Uh, now, if you think about the cable business, uh, this is the not the content business. This is the literally the pipes, the distribution of cable. Which to is why he homes. was perfect for this. Exactly. It, it's like, a cash lot, flow business. Cash flow business, but the same thing, right? A huge upfront infrastructure spend, and you will get your money, basically recurring revenue year after. It'll take a while to get your, your nut back, but then eventually it's a lot of money down the road and yep. it's recurring. Yeah. I mean, I remember... And limited supply also. I mean, you think about cable. There's... In New York, as everyone knows, when uh, you know when Time Warner decides to stop carrying a channel, you're out there's of luck. Monopoly. Same thing. There's a limited amount of commercial real estate in New York. Yeah. I remember back in, uh, in the mid-2000s, I was in a media investment banker at UBS in New York, and I remember covering cable companies, and the history of cable companies, as we've discussed a little bit on Acquired, was like nobody believed in them during the 80s and 90s when they were incurring huge losses doing all this build-out of laying the cable, laying the pipes into 
consumers' homes. But then the switch flipped, exactly like you said, Dan, and then they became cash flow monsters and people loved them. Uh, and so I think a lot of yeah. this bet here was the same thing was going to happen with WeWork. And already said that explicitly over and over again. Yeah. He, he felt he felt they were analogous. And that's Ben Thompson's AWS analogy, too, that says, look, there's huge build-out costs. It would be strange if this business weren't incurring huge losses right now in this era of rapid expansion of infrastructure. At some point, it should flip. Yeah, indeed. This, though... <laughs> it did, by the way. It did eventually flip. AWS definitely just the, uh, did. No, yeah. no this, we work just in the opposite direction. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, exactly. Sorry I was going to say, this is... No, 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 you're not. This is... A switch does flip at this moment. Unfortunately, the switch that flips, I think, was more in Adam than in the business. Yeah, so, um, so this this is the moment where, until this point, the name WeWork is in no way solid or in no way a head-scratcher. It's, it's a really interesting company that seems to have product market fit that's, of course, growing very fast, but no one's looking at the growth and saying, like, there's something massively awry mostly. here. Mostly. The only concern, I, I, at least I remember hearing at the time, was this argument. And you know, the Pepsi thing's interesting because the, the enterprise piece of them in terms of renting to big enterprise companies wasn't well known and wasn't even that big within WeWork in terms of its revenue at the time. Hmm. There was a concern that, wait a minute, they are, they're filling these with all of these startups, these right. tech startups. If the tech startup bubble bursts... Yep. And that's on top of a commercial real estate burp. You've got burst rather. You've got a bubble on top of a bubble, and then the yeah. whole thing goes to hell very, very quickly. That's a great point. Yeah, that yeah. was. I, I distinctly remember having this conversation like late 2014 of uh, I would be short this company purely because there's going to be a tech bubble that bursts soon, <laughs> which here we are five years later, and we're all still waiting for it to happen, or maybe well, it's happening maybe it right now. <laughs> um, but but yeah, Dan, that's a great point. Yeah. But you're right, but the growth makes sense. It's the reason they kept raising money at higher valuations. And they kept filling the buildings. I mean, that's important. The buildings kept yeah. being full. Yeah, they kept being full. So Adam, at this point, he's very wealthy on paper. But as they keep raising money, he starts doing it's it's unclear exactly the method by which he did this but he starts taking a, quite a bit of money off the table some cl- definitely from selling his own shares we won't know there were any- and there were all there were employee tenders i mean he i am told at least that every time there's some debt stuff too with JP Morgan, but in yeah. general, every time he sold shares, it was part of an employee tender. And yeah. He was selling at the same price they were, but he just had a lot more stock. Well, I was going to say, yeah. Then the w- what we do know is that by the time we get to now, he has, I believe, it's a five hundred million dollar loan facility personally from JP Morgan, backed by his WeWork shares. So, which Correct. is effectively a way to be selling without actually selling your shares along the way. Five hundred million dollars—that's a lot of money. The man's got a lot of houses. That's it's exactly. got, what, like 10 homes or something like that? Yeah. So he starts wow. doing two things. You know, what? That's two for each of his children. That's not bad. <laughs> well, he does have five children. Uh, well, but, I, look, I agree. If I had five children, I too would have 10 houses. So I don't begrudge <laughs> that at all. But but yeah, he starts buying residential property. Uh, he owns four multi-million, we're talking like 10 plus million dollar properties in the New York area alone. And Dan, I think you're right. 10 residential properties around the I world. I believe so, yeah. 10 are, are in that ballpark. Well, he also sees, gosh, there's these companies like WeWork that will pay a bunch of money to me exactly. if I own a building to, to lease That's it from me. That's the so other thing. I got to figure out a way to get into this building ownership business. The other thing and the other 
more problematic thing that he starts doing is he uses starts using this money to invest in commercial real estate and this is a huge conflict of interest because i mean and his, it is it's, not, it's an obvious conflict of interest his argument was always next i remember hearing about this and actually asking about this this is before i joined axios is if when we brought him and his wife rebecca to to a fortune conference in aspen i remember asking about this his basic argument was we were having a hard time so i, I almost think he did some of the commercial real estate earlier because at least his argument hmm. was we were having a hard time at points convincing landlords to let us in because they viewed us as this venture back startup mm. oh we're going to sign a 20-year lease but where are you really going to be in five years or you're not you're going to be gone but if i buy the building or i have a piece of the building well we'll lease to we work because i have yeah. faith in it so i'm solving that i'm solving for that problem but you're right obvious conflict of interest right well i mean out of it, that logic which may in make theory sense. if you had an independent board of directors which had oversight would be able to manage and and, and silence yeah and that logic might make sense but then the obvious answer is start investing have we work start buying Correct. buildings not adam personally. which is what they ultimately get to but yeah, not which is, yeah right yeah not adam personally and then leasing the buildings back to we work where that he's profiting on the other thing. I mean, this is just standard, like ridiculous startup stuff. Uh, they, uh, uh, which is sad to say at this point, but they rent out all of universal studios one day and they get the chain smokers to perform and they start doing this thing called we work summer, summer camp. camp. Yeah. Um, it actually started at Rebecca's family's property. I think in upstate New York, somewhere like, I don't think it's the Catskill, Catskills, but somewhere sort of like that looks a lot like that. There's a, there's a few really great pieces reporting on this, um, but it's like 150 acres of land. Um, her family, I think, is independently wealthy. Actually, her cousin is Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The- it, it, you know, again, this is one of those things that sounds so stupid. And it is. I, I remember the first time I called, I think it was I had talked to like who was running PR uh, for WeWork at the time. And I called and I get a text back saying, sorry, I'm at camp right now. And to which I say to a colleague of mine, I say, because it was like June, maybe I said to a colleague, I think he's bringing his kid to camp. And she responds, he doesn't have a kid. I said, but he says he's at camp. She said, oh, he's at WeWork camp. And that began a whole conversation. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? But I will say, like, look at Google. Google still does this. Totally, like, yeah. so if things are going well no one cares and when yeah. things go badly this looks just awful so when you have a monopoly in an 85 percent gross margin business you can do shit like this you can't by the way <laughs> I, as i said i came from fortune magazine the old stories for fortune from before my time were when they had a blowout the fortune 500 issue was you know the kind of the vogue issue right yeah. it was massive and i guess maybe like 10 years before i'd gotten there they had a blowout issue and they brought the entire staff from you know most junior to the most senior everybody to hawaii for a week so i mean that in retrospect was really dumb, but you know, yeah. at the time you, you do know, it. great. Like, you know, exactly. But here we are in a, I don't know, 10 to 20% gross margin business. That's purely right now. Like all the cash in the bank is investor dollars. None of it is profit dollars. Correct. You know, Correct. You know. yeah. So the peak of this period of the company is 2016. They raise just under half a billion dollars from, um, two Chinese entities uh, that value the company at $16 billion. Uh, and that was, I, I think that was the first time they crossed the $10 billion valuation threshold. And now they're among the top like three most valuable startups in the world, to quote unquote startups. And but we work, we work, Uber, Airbnb, Airbnb. And then you can uh, take some of the Chinese ones, but at least for the U S yeah. Yeah, for the at least for the U.S. and I think that was 2016. That was before I think people really maybe Dropbox at that point was already there, but close, yeah. maybe not quite. It was like yeah. in the five ish because it, yeah. it went IPO around ten. Yeah, yeah, but Uber, Airbnb, and them. That, yeah. Those were the three. Well, and and I think actually a lot of the Chinese companies hadn't even been started in 2016 yet. Some, I mean, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, like 
Pinduoduo, Duo, I think, was started in like 2017. Like, it's crazy. So, uh, so, so, yeah. so benchmarks two for three in these uh, these three big $10 yeah. billion dollar plus Well, plus companies. there's a Snapchat was kind of up on its, you know, rise at that point. So, yeah, everybody's sitting pretty. Enter SoftBank. And it's uh, one of a kind founder, Masayoshi-san. Listeners, if you don't hear the Imperial March playing, know that it's because I checked with Disney and we did not get the copyright <laughs> authorization to put that behind this section. So we've talked a lot about SoftBank on this show, including doing a whole episode on the Vision Fund. We're now in early 2017. SoftBank has just raised the Vision Fund. And we're going to talk a lot about their motivations and everything that happened here along the way. But one thing I think to really keep in mind, like they have $100 billion to put to work. Theoretically. Theoretically. And their goal uh, that they're clear about is they want to deploy this capital in less than five years. How do you deploy $100 billion, which as we've talked about, is the largest fund of any type in any asset class ever raised in history? How do you do that, uh, let alone in tech companies? You need to find some companies that can absorb massive chunks of capital. So they start looking around and they say, where can we put this money? Uh, Uber is obviously one example that they put quite a lot of a number of those billions into. But here's this interesting company called WeWork. It's already one of the highest valued startups in the world. And they have this interesting capital dynamic. They're very capital intensive. They scale with capital. They take on these long-term leases. And they want to move into Asia. And they want to move into Asia. Exactly. This feels like the perfect fit. We could really put a lot of billions to work in this company and then, you know, get through our deployment phase in fund one and just like, you know, any good fund manager, you then go raise our next fund. Yeah. Now, David, is this is SoftBank Vision Fund's mission to invest in technology companies? How, how does that start to factor into the picture? And 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 by this point, we work believes it's a technology company. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. the one thing you, you didn't say when I thought you were going when you talked about that inflection point was it's starting to be honest. The AWS example is pretty good, right? It is starting to add lot or believes it's starting to add lots of services on top of the real estate, right? So beyond the beer taps and, yeah. st- and, and, yeah. and the and the decor, it's trying to add all these services, and some of those are social network for members, all that stuff. Uh, eventually, at elementary school, but nonetheless, that that's the idea, and I think that's part of it. But it's also if you're Masa, you're SoftBank looks at what they believe are transformational shifts in how people either live or work, right? Yep. So they invest in Slack, for example, right? That's a, They think that's a fundamental change in how people work from collaboration. In this case, they think this is a fundamental change in how people work from a physical location standpoint. So this works for that from a thematic yep. standpoint. Thematically, but economically, this doesn't have the high fixed cost, low variable cost component that a, tr- a true sort of pure technology business would have. No. Not at all. But I think as to underscore again, as we said, it has this other extremely attractive element to SoftBank. Different than, you know, SoftBank invested in Slack, right? How much money could they put into Slack? They couldn't put that much money in. And Uber, Uber, they could only plug a ton in because it was in crisis. You know, it was right. in a management crisis. They took advantage of a situation. And if, even if you look at Vision Fund, they had put a ton of that was was money that they had already invested in ARM. In ARM, that, yeah. That, that they basically just transferred over to take a big chunk. It, if you're doing privately held companies, as you say, it is hard. It was the big question when they raised, how are you going to deploy yeah, this in what are you any reasonable do way? This? Yeah. And so here's this like perfect vehicle so (laughs) this is amazing dan you may know more details on on this on how this happens but the softbank team is scouring the world looking for companies like this we work as top of the list so they 
set up a you know sort of like final diligence meeting where Masa is going to come over to New York to WeWork headquarters. They have two hours booked with Adam. Going to see the whole space. Going to spend <laughs> a lot of time with Adam. And as the story goes, uh, the time when Masa is supposed to show up arrives. Adam's all like you know ready. He's activated the space as he uh, <laughs> says that he does. Uh, and um, Masa is nowhere to be found. Time goes by waiting like an hour goes by finally masa shows up and he says i'm really sorry i only have 12 minutes (laughs) and so they do a quick walkthrough in the space and then he says to adam i gotta get in the car to the airport you can get in the car with me if you want we can talk about this adam gets in the car with him masa pulls out his ipad as the story goes draws up with his like finger on the ipad a sketch of like the terms of a deal the terms being that SoftBank would invest an initial four billion in total out of the company, fund. out of the Vision Fund, and that's one billion for international expansion into uh, entities outside the U.S. in Asia. Yep, one point three billion of primary capital into the company, and one point seven billion in secondary to basically buy shares from existing shareholders. No new cash, including Adam. Including Adam. <laughs> they sketch this on the iPad in the car. Masa signs his name to it. Adam signs his name to it. And then, of course, like the team. And it's important, just for those who don't understand Vision Fund, to get an investment from Vision Fund, at least one, I think it's like over $100 million, you do need Masa's approval. And and that can't be via phone. It's got to be an in person meeting. This isn't a normal venture fund where one partner meets with this, or maybe two partners meet with the CEO and then they bring it back to the partners and they discuss it and they have an investment committee and a vote. No, if you want this, Adam had to meet with Masa. This has been true for anyone who's raised money from them. Yeah. Wow. Lots of friends. It's what, 100 companies now, 100 investments? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what the number is. Although Vision Fund one is basically, full in terms of new companies yeah basically full. I, I have friends who've gone through this like where the softbank investment team will you know work on a deal together and then it's like okay well we're gonna fly you over to tokyo or wherever in the, yeah, world the fact that masa, masa came to, to new york be- was a big deal or was gonna be in new york was a big deal because you're right deal. usually you have to get on a usually plane you go. go to tokyo yeah so uh it's done so now all of a sudden uh they valued the company at 20 billion dollars which was you know was already valued at 16 but this was $4 billion of capital. That was a step order of new capital coming in and 1.7 of that going to existing shareholders, which again, we don't know the details, but I imagine a lot of that was to Adam. Yeah. And also notable time, uh, they get two board members too. It's important. They, they put two people on the board of directors at this moment. Yeah. Which that had to be stomach churning for Adam, who's obsessed with control. Well, I, as we will learn later, he had two people on the board of directors, but you know they have as much control over financial decisions there as my kid does in my house, right? Like they, <laughs> she can ask for things and complain about things, but in the end, I get to decide what we buy and what we don't buy. Dan, do you know? So famously, now Adam has a twenty votes for every one share in the company that he has. Do you know if he got this as part of the I do not know. deal? I do not know. At some point along the way, I mean, I have to, again, we can't go back. We don't have the documents to sort of forensically examine what the But luckily, there will go- probably be class action lawsuits at some yeah, point, so, so we <laughs> will get these documents. It's just a question of time. But what the governance was at various points along the way, I can say with 100% confidence, there's no way that, going back to like the original benchmark investment, that the voting structure was was like this. I don't know that that's true necessarily. I mean, think benchmark and it's not just benchmark, but all of them were so bent over backwards for any for, you know, I mean, go back to the Zuckerberg thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. 
think of Zuckerberg. He turns down a billion dollars from Yahoo when the entire board, including his investors, wanted him to take the deal. He was able to do that. And, and as you know, I mean, after that, so many other founders of quote, hot startups yeah. were able to get similar terms, whether it was 20 to one or not. I, I have no doubt that after the benchmark deal and the B and the C rounds, Adam could ultimately, whatever he had, it was more than the rest of the board combined. Yeah. And- what is really interesting here is the, the, the soft bank dynamic that comes into play with boards, because they're basically the only entity that is going to do the things that they're going to do because they so aggressively want to put this capital to work. So they basically arm Adam to go back to the board holding a piece of paper that says, I'm going to get literally billions in, in investment dollars, and the terms can kind of be as Adam friendly as they want. You can look you look at the rest of the board. The board's not going to say, no, we don't want $2 billion here to what, $2.3 billion yeah. of new capital coming into the company. Like almost any terms, they're going to be happy with that, especially because what SoftBank does is they say, also, if you don't take it, we're going to find someone who competes against you who will. And, and also with SoftBank, they and Adam are peas in a pod in this, right? Adam <laughs> Adam is a grow, 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 grow person. And that is what SoftBank's model has been really with most of its companies that the Vision Fund's invested in, right? You know, think of DoorDash, think of Uber. It has been this idea that if you buy, no matter what the industry is, if you buy market share, you can suffer the losses. We will make money eventually. And so in the case of WeWork, that is... New markets, new cities, new buildings. Buy, 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 and here's your checkbook. We're going to do this, and that's exactly what Adam wants to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a famous uh, story also of uh, they have a closing dinner uh, for the investment in Tokyo after it happens, and uh, supposedly Masa asks Adam uh, and Miguel, um, "Who would win?" In a, a sort of rhetorical question: Who would win in a fight? Who wins in a fight? The crazy guy or the smart guy? And Adam answers right off the bat, the crazy guy. And Masa says, yes, the problem is you're not crazy enough. <laughs> so he's, you know, Dan, we talked about this in yeah. the prep for this. Masa, in a lot of ways, is feeding Adam's instincts here. Absolutely. I mean, it enabled, he's an enabler. But but beyond that, he's more than that. He's an enabler who's also like pushing him from behind. I mean, the as I said, they, they were perfect for each other in the sense of they both wanted the same thing. And, and you know, leaving the money out of it, Masa, you know, when you hear founders saying, you know, I want this investor because they see the same vision I see, Masa was that guy. Yeah, yeah. So this is the pivotal moment where if you accept this term sheet as the board, this is the last opportunity that you have to exert any measure of control. This is basically, you're faced with this, it's almost a Kobayashi Maru. On, on one side here, you cannot take $2.7 billion of fresh capital in a company that needs a crap ton of capital. On the other side, you can accept your fate that what all then happens in the next two and a half years, something along those lines, you're 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 letting happen. It's not going to necessarily play out yeah. exactly like it did, but you're basically saying this is the SoftBank and Adam show. We're about to do a but bunch of crazy stuff. You're also maybe getting stuff. paid off. We, what we another thing we do not know is you know you talk about that tender. Did Benchmark take money off the table in that deal? Yeah. They might have. They did Maybe. an Uber from yep. SoftBank. So, like, you might also be saying, well, okay, we're getting our principal back plus, you know, 3x our principal. So, we're already in the money. Right. Yeah. Worst thing that happens is we're 3x in the money or 5x or whatever the hell the number is. So, you know, go for it. And then yeah. make, make us, you know, make us the next Google, make us the next Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Get the exactly like you're at the, you're at the casino at this point. You know, you've gotten 3x your money back. Let it all ride, you know? Like So those are the incentives. I mean, we've talked about the board and the investors. We've talked about uh, Adam is looking for this partner in crime and SoftBank is looking to go put 
billions and billions of dollars into something because boy, are those management fees sweet when they have these huge funds and they can actually put it to work. Yeah. It's also crazy too. I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. This was like mid 2017. That was two years ago. Like this was very recent. Yeah, it feels five years ago. It feels 10 years ago. Uh, so much has changed. So they take this money, uh, they turn around right away. And they buy the Lord and Taylor building uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York for $850 million, <laughs> which, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a real estate investor. I don't know how to judge like whether that was a good investment or not. But now all of a sudden you're now in a new league of capital deployment here. Uh, and this is for their head. I mean, it's partially to, the, they'll use some floors. We were, this is because they feel they need new headquarters because they have gr- physically grown out of theirs and they're out of space. And I will say from being in their headquarters, even a few months before all hell broke loose this year, it was crowded. Like yeah. it was legitimately crowded. They hired a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, they had uh, 15,000 employees yeah. uh, until this week. Now that Lord and Taylor store is going to look like an American apparel store. The one you pass by, <laughs> it's going to look very similar. <laughs> oh man. How history repeats itself. They also, at this point, uh, purchased the infamous Gulfstream G650 private jet purchased by the company for Adam's use uh, for $60 million. Right around the same time, Adam and his wife, Rebecca, who at this point has been rewritten into history as a co-founder of the company, as best as we could tell in our research, she and Adam were together when they started the company, but was not actually like really it's a fascinating thing too because usually co-founders get written out of stories not written in like yeah. the, you know silicon valley is littered with people who legitimately co-founded companies who don't get to be part of those narratives yeah. and in this case in yeah. uh in the sort of like sci-fi world uh this is referred to as a retcon a retroactive <laughs> conversion yeah you sort of retcon that person into that role yeah uh again we don't know for sure but um so anyway they uh the two of them decide right around the same time that going back to the green desk environmental roots of the company, they really should ban meat from. It would have such an environmental impact if they banned meat yeah. from WeWorks. This and is, I have heard a backstory of this. And I, again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim that this is completely true. But the back the, a story I heard when this decision came up, or when Adam proposed this decision, was that internally they said no. Uh, like his people internally said, for example, we have salespeople who go and try to sell things to potential customers or maybe meet with landlords, are they not, and they're going to pick up the tab, right? You know, I'm, I'm a salesperson. If the person I'm with gets a burger, can they not buy it? And because Adam had actually basically yeah. said, no, no company money will be spent on meat. Well, yeah. that is a problem. And so people raised all these legitimate concerns, but this goes yeah. to the government later to the governance. Yeah, this yeah. wasn't a board issue, but raised all these legitimate concerns. And he sat there, he took them all in and just got up and said, yeah, we're going to ban meat and walked out and, and, and then announced it before they yeah. like and just announced it. And that was that. And that's wow. how these things worked. Yeah. At I will the same say, time that he's flying around on a private jet, which very has great. terrible David, environmental impact. Cover your ears and ignore the co- cognitive dissonance. Nothing wrong with banning meat, but like uh, in theory, but the, but, it, the, it's the, part, the, but it's part of this idea that, that we work, you know, what was that line you said? The, the community line, right? I yeah. mean, Adam and, and I, I believe this was sincere. Uh, he believed WeWork was more than a co-working space. You yeah. know, anytime, if you've ever been in a WeWork and you get in the elevator to go up to whatever the floor is, there's a schedule of events. These events have nothing to do with, quote, business as it is. It is farmer's markets. It is, you know, uh, it yoga. is yoga. Yeah. It's stuff like that. He legitimately believed that. And he also believed that that was a way to keep customers. That when you, okay, maybe now my three-person company now is a 20-person company. We should maybe have our own space. But man, we like it here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, Again, not wrong. It just got so perverted over time. Um, the uh, <laughs> so fast forward to this year, and um, you know the probably 
I think in many ways, once this came out in the IPO filing, this was the straw that sort of broke the camel's back. Um, We've talked about everything that's happened up until now. In January of 2019, WeWork changes its name to the We Company. And in doing so, WeWork did not have the trademark for the name, the We Company. Who had that trademark? Adam had that trademark uh, via an entity he controlled called uh, We Holdings, I believe. And so WeWork, at Adam's direction, licensed that name from his own company for $5.9 million. And um, I, I, again, I, I'm just sort of speechless and the, here. And, and, the, and the defense of Adam Newman in this, and which I'm not going to make, by the way, because I said this was horrible. Uh, but the, the, defense, the argument was, was that this was a tax issue, was that, that, that it had a val- that Adam had created it, it had a value. And if he simply gave it, it's kind of like you can't just give your friend a brand new car. You just can't do it. There's a tax liability with that, mm-hmm. that if he had simply given it to the company now. This is also a person who did have a $500 million loan from JP Morgan. This is someone who had taken, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. He could have sucked up the taxes and how, and again, even if it's one of those things that the board at the time was willing to do, how nobody was able to flag it and convince everybody internally before it became publicly disclosed is a just endless. Yeah. Mystery. Like how this would look. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Even even if there is, it's one of those things that even if you could make a valid on paper argument for it, the, the optics are so god awful, you don't do it. Yeah. David, yeah. I have a name thing I got to talk to you about after this. <laughs> We're changing the name. <laughs> We're going to be the acquired company. No, um, uh, acquired media LLC is a great name. Right around the same time. News comes out. Remember SoftBank and their motivations. They want to dump a lot of money in here. So now we're in the beginning of 2019. We're two years into the Vision Fund. God, I can't believe that was that was that was this. That's year. when the news comes out. The, the discussion between SoftBank and Adam or yeah. we workers are going on in late 2018. And Adam does think he has a deal. Yeah. Well, and again, so like let's like one of the things I wanted to we wanted to do on this episode is talk about why is SoftBank doing what they're doing throughout all this. Okay, so we're now two years into the Vision Fund. They've deployed a lot of it, but they're thinking about and talking publicly about Vision Fund 2 and trying to start fundraising Which for that. People are still like like shaking off the shock that Vision Fund 1 happened. Like this yeah. notion that, oh, we're about to go do it again, $100 billion again. Yeah, yeah. So now, speaking as a fund manager, like any fund manager, you can't, you, it is in your fund documents that you cannot go raise a successor fund until typically you are at least two thirds, if not more, deployed and reserved of your initial fund. So they're now sitting here, and I don't, I don't know exactly how much capital they had deployed out of Vision Fund One at this point, but they're like, we want to raise Fund Two. We got to deploy Fund One. So news comes out that they're talking about, and like you said, Dan Adam thinks there's a deal for SoftBank and the Vision Fund to invest sixteen billion more in WeWork. And by the way, this is the first time the issue of control comes up because the the story, the news stories that come up were that that SoftBank would basically buy a majority stake in the company, which even though I don't think it was ever explicitly said, the assumption is if you own most of the company, you get to make most of the rules. Which we thought and, until yesterday. Which we thought until yesterday. Uh, but Adam, apparently, at least from what I'm told, was never going to give up control. And that this becomes this issue of you might mm-hmm. own 52%, but I still have control. And that I don't think that was the breaking point of that deal, but that was always mm-hmm. something I always heard from Adam's people in internally at WeWork was that he always felt the reporting on that was wrong because, quote, he was never, ever going to give up control in a SoftBank mm. deal. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because it was not Adam that blew up that deal. No. 
Oh, it was SoftBank's LPs. So uh, at least according to the reporting. D- David, yes. walk us through this. I thought venture capital was a blind pool. <laughs> Not envisioned. Saudi Arabia has a Saudi. It's actually funny. Saudi Arabia doesn't have a veto. They can't kill a deal. Huh. But Saudi Arabia, which and I'm gonna, you probably know this better than me. I think they're like thirty or forty percent of the fund. Yeah. Like they can say you can't use our money for this, and they are uh, for uh, anything over a certain amount. They are they have a right to basically say you go do the deal. But we're carved out of this one, and yeah, interesting. Which is not typical in a venture no, but, fund agreement. But, but a there's forty such billion a large dollar LP. commitment isn't typical in a venture fund agreement. Either, a, so you should get a little bit of extra say, shouldn't you? There's a lot of things that are not typical about the vision fund. Um, but regardless of whatever control they had, they had the ultimate hammer, which LPs always have, which is like we're evaluating you about whether we're going to do fund two or not. And I, I have to believe that that was ultimately the leverage they had and why SoftBank backed out of the deal was they're like, oh, shoot, actually, if we do this, it's going to jeopardize. There's also tense relationships at this point. Remember when you're thinking, now, this is a little bit after, but in October of 2018, we're talking December, January. In October of 2013 is when uh, Jamal Khashoggi gets killed. 2018. Uh, 2018, sorry, I apologize. Uh, Masa decides... He's not going to go to their big conference. He'll, yeah. He's actually going to show up in Saudi Arabia and meet behind the closed doors, but he's not mm. going to sit on stage. So things are tense. This yeah. is Davos in the desert. Davos in the desert, correct. Which yeah. is happening very shortly. Happening this coming Tuesday. Masa is speaking this year. Oh. Wow. Someone needs to raise a fund. <laughs> Man, that, that just shows it, it's it's all written out right there. I mean, it, 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 not to no, I'll make a value judgment on the show. Like that's a, that's a horrible thing to go after the events that transpired and represent your your organization there and participate. Clearly, clearly, desperately needs to raise a fund. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So uh, the deal falls apart. SoftBank does end up investing corporate, I believe, not the Vision Correct. Fund. $2 billion in WeWork at this point in time. Because so WeWork needs the cash. They've been grow, grow, grow. They bought the Lord and Taylor building for $850 million. Like, And they've been making decisions. Ba- because remember, this de- the bigger deal fell apart really at the last minute as far as WeWork was concerned. Mm-hmm. They were making... And think about the time again. End of year, Q4. That's when you're making all your plans for the next year. They expected to have the money. They were... I don't know whether they were officially signing leases or not, but they certainly had the engine running. Yeah, yeah. totally. And and to explain the SoftBank Corp thing, this is SoftBank, the gigantic telecom that's been around for 30, 40 years that that, precipit- that came before the Vision Fund. This is off their balance sheet rather than... Yeah. The and a balance sheet that SoftBank Corp expects to grow in 2019 because they've agreed to sell Sprint, a deal that's still ah. not closed. Interesting. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, we did the T-Mobile Sprint episode so long ago, I forgot that it hasn't closed has yet. Has not closed. Still, being, still in court. Yeah, still uh, antitrust regulation, but I believe they just Not got anti- they got they got through antitrust, yeah. but about uh, a dozen state attorney generals are are suing to block it. So oh, we will wow. see. Hmm. We'll see. Wow. So okay, so now now WeWork needs a plan B. They need capital to fund this plan, and probably a lot of these lease commitments are in place already. So what's what's the alter- at this point? I'm going to raise a point here that we want to talk more about. There is essentially only one buyer of WeWork shares at this point and that's SoftBank like at these or the public market or the, or the public market well the belief is or the public market turns Correct. out the public market Correct. is not a buyer no. <laughs> but, the, but but so they're looking around for alternatives there's no other private investment uh, firm or entity that WeWork could go to for financing at this right. point in time uh, so some might call this a price discovery problem yeah indeed uh, so the only alternative is well 
public markets. Let's tap the public markets. So in April of 2019, just like three months after this deal falls apart, they file confidentially with the SEC to go public. Uh, it gets reported that that's, this is happening. They filed technically in December. Technically oh, filed confidentially. Yeah, they, oh, wow. they, they thought it, they did it. Oh, what was the ex- they gave an explanation which I didn't think made a lot of sense, but they did because why else would they have done it? Uh, some something about the timing in the year, but yeah, they filed officially confidentially oh, wow. in December. It got reported huh. several months later. Is, wow, is that like uh, help us understand that timeline versus a normal IPO timeline? Was this rushed? Uh, no, that makes sense. If you were to file confidentially in December, they they knew kind of similar to how Uber knew or Lyft knew that this was un- that this company was relatively unusual and that the SEC was going to have more questions than it would have, mm. you know, for a run of the mill company. Uh, so you file in December with the idea. First idea, maybe we'll go public in late spring, but we'll probably go public in September. We are working on this big SoftBank deal, so we don't have to, but yeah. we'll have this in our back pocket. You do it in December. No one's paying attention until January anyway. Yeah. Go through a bunch of revisions. You don't want to go public in the middle of the summer. You'll come out right when Q3 happens. You'll be out You'll be out the door. And indeed, that was what they tried to do. Yes. Uh, so August comes around of this year, just two short months ago, and they filed the public version of the S1, which means like... The train has left the station. Like once the public version of the S1 comes out, the process is going. Yeah, should be six weeks and then you're up. You're public. Should be six weeks and you're public. And all hell breaks loose. (laughs) I mean, Dan, you were more than anyone on top of this. It's one of the most remarkable S1s that's ever been written. And not just because, look, let's, let's start with the obvious, right? There was huge revenue growth. You know, the the, the base, if, if you only read like to the whatever it is, like the eighth page where you see kind of the top line financials, even yeah. though the losses were massive, which wasn't a secret, because remember, WeWork had been kind of like Uber had done, even though they were private, had been disclosing financials for a while for two reasons. One, because they wanted people probably not to be shocked by the S1 eventually. And two, they had done a bond offering, a public bond right. offering about a year and a half earlier. So they had public disclosure requirements anyway. So the top line, look, revenue growth was huge and it was billions of dollars of revenue. This wasn't a small yeah. thing. Losses were huge, billion dollars of losses. Uh, but then you had to keep reading. And to be honest, these things are like 100 pages long. And this, and- this I think, is the longest I've ever read. It was like, multiple hundreds of pages it was very long and lots of reporters kept going to different sections and finding things that were shocking and surprising and you kept looking at and going no that can't be right and you would have we had conversations like it says this but it doesn't really right like what am i because these are written by lawyers and bankers what does it really mean right and good lord and also partially because you know you talked at one point about you know adam has some real estate WeWork has is this series of LLCs. Every building is its own oh. LLC. So it's an incredibly even even if everything is on the up and up and there's it's an extraordinarily complex organization structurally and all that comes out in the S1. Yeah. yeah, even without, I mean, there's, I think it's page, I'm going to lose it, but the first 20 pages here, there's their org structure. Here it is, page 16 of the We Company that owns the We Company MC LLC that has the We Company partnership and then the We Work Companies LLC and then the all the countries and like this is before you get to buildings. Yeah. And remember they'd also they'd raised or, or still are or maybe not now. They'd been raising a massive fund. You know, you talked about oh, you know, We Work should have bought the buildings. Well, they were doing that. They yeah. ra- they were raising a massive fund which Adam was going to have a, a stake in but just like everybody else at We Work would and that was going to go buy buildings and that was again, that's another separate entity which is then leasing out and all that. But yeah, look, we learn a lot of stuff. This is where 
we learn about the trademark thing. Yeah. This is where we learn about the extraordinary amount of control he have, even to the point where if something were to happen to Adam, like he were to die, the board doesn't get to replace him. His <laughs> wife, Rebecca, gets to decide the succession plan. And we, if she dies too, then their children, absolutely. Uh, their heirs get we, we learn that they are also going to give away an enormous amount of money in charity after this IPO. I think he's mm-hmm. committing to a bill. And Adam has, I will say, Adam has given a lot of money in charity over the years out of some of that money. He hasn't put it all into houses and Gulf streams. Uh, but I think they commit that they're going to give a billion dollars over 10 years after the IPO away from proceeds. Which is, uh, from, is uh, it's it, fascinating. There's yeah. actually in this document a section that says charitable commitments of our co-founders and yeah. other senior leaders. That is very atypical. It's very atypical. One. And by the, if, if this had become official, if this IPO had gone forward, he would have, I think, been legally obligated to do so. I mean, he was, he was, ob- this wasn't a giving pledge, which is signing something that Warren Buffett gave you. And, you know, if you don't do it, what's going to happen to you? This had the force of law behind it in theory. Yeah. Or at least the force of the SEC branch. The SEC. Of, okay, yeah. so much, much weaker well, law. law. No, law. But, I mean, that's law. law. Yeah, yeah. It is sort of law. It's not they the have DOJ, like, but it's something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe, and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. So let's talk about what we don't learn in this document. So what I was really trying, when we were talking about doing this episode, in my head, I'm like, okay, I want to tell people what the macro story is here. And then the, the question in my mind was, is this actually a good business at steady state if we work stops expanding? So I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling in hundreds of pages. You can't actually ascertain, hey, of the cohort of your buildings that are at scale, what are the gross margins? What are the unit economics? They keep saying we have really strong unit economics. And then the only financials they give are this like massively blended one that is is, uh, uh, you know, a, a very, very basic P&L that shows uh, the, the business, including all of the expansion. So really difficult to tease out what losses are actually incurred at maturity. They have this silly graph that has no y-axis with like this, this curve that basically shows, hey, the buildings are break even after six months. But like not much more detail than that. No, and, and, and that you would have thought they maybe would have... 
by the time they filed the S1, learned the lesson from Uber, which had a similar problem, uh, which, which is, you know, every look, every single company I think I've ever talked to tells me that even though they're losing a lot of money, their unit economics are fantastic. <laughs> I'm waiting for someone to say, well, our unit economics are kind of mediocre. No, unit <laughs> economics are always great. But you're right. And, and that was an issue with Uber. right? Guess like, what? They don't what, tell investors no, that either. <laughs> but when you looked inside Uber's documents, you could not figure out how much what, what were the unit economics per ride, particularly for Uber Eats, per delivery. You couldn't figure out any of that. I think that has been an ongoing problem for them. And we work was the same way, right? You and yeah. and you should have been able to because we work had been saying things over the years, like again, like Uber in mature for them mature markets where they had been X number of years or had X number of buildings. We were building profitable. Even understood there there's there's overhead, there is marketing, but you couldn't even figure out that yeah. on, in that building in Soho that they'd been in for four years, take out all the overhead. Is the building profitable? No yeah. freaking idea. No idea. Which is a problem because if the argument was Artie Minson's argument, like with a cable company, eventually you could figure that out. What was the, you know, was deciding to lay pipe in Seattle? Did that make money in the end? After a certain amount of time, you should be able to say yes or no. Yeah. In this case, they didn't. They, it, it wasn't even that they couldn't, they didn't. And the backstory that you keep hearing, and part of this is probably self serving about bankers and board, is that these things were indeed raised, not by the SEC, but these things were raised by bankers and boards. And just like with Adam and the meat thing, he basically waved his hand and said, don't worry about it. This is how we're doing it. Wow. So needless to say, potential public market investors react terribly to this, as does the media and everybody. Um, first problem is the governance, as you keep saying, Dan. Yeah. So September 13th, WeWork announces is changing the corporate governance and Adam is still going to have the super voting shares, right? But they're going to be weaker. They're, I think it was supposed to go down to three to one, if I'm correct. It was 20 and then 10. And 20 and then, then 10 and then three, right? Yeah. So he, it was going to lower the, the succession thing was going to change. The board was going to be able to determine who was yeah. his replacement. Was there one? And they were allowed to fire him, which was important. And by the way, that's unusual because, again, think of Facebook. Board can't fire Zuckerberg. Uh, I don't think Alphabet, they can fire Larry Page. Yeah. That was interesting that the yeah. board now, even though they didn't have the votes, the one thing they could vote on would be to fire Adam Newman. Now, this was, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. This was an announcement. This was not an actual change. These were things that were going to happen no, uh, upon the IPO. Uh, ex yes and no. And that's where things get very tricky because, as we know, they do fire Adam Newman. Yeah. So they clearly got the ability to do so. Or maybe they uh, just persuaded him he had to step away. Mm -hmm. uh, either way, we, we being you, me, the media, <laughs> everyone, everyone is under the impression at that moment that these changes have been made. It is codified. It's talked about in an SEC document. And again, it comes this question yeah. of, okay, is this something you've done or is this something that is effective as of the issuance, the, the, the actual you know shares being off or being issued? Yeah. That remains unclear. Because I believe when we get to the end of this in just a sec, Adam still has the 20 to 1. If not 20, shares. he has at least 10. I yeah. believe he still has 10. He, it's can, not he still controls the votes as of, well, as of two days ago. Yeah. So... Then September 24th, Adam is out as CEO. The board is replaced. He remains chairman. He, he, remains, he becomes chairman. Yeah, executive chairman. Yeah. Even that wasn't enough to get the IPO back on track. They announce after that they're pulling the IPO. Well, let, let's just go back quickly because this is important. This is where SoftBank plays. Even before Adam gets fired, there start to be reports over a weekend that SoftBank is pushing to have the IPO postponed. Now, remember, Adam wants this thing to go forward. Th to be honest, the board wants this to go forward as well. And obviously, the bankers want this to go forward. It's an interesting leak. It's an interesting leak. And SoftBank will not cop to it. But if you go to who had incentive 
to leak this because this is a really damaging thing to leak. This isn't just like, oh, you know, maybe earnings projections. Well, this is really damaging. This is saying to prospective investors, this thing shouldn't happen. That's yeah. a real freaking problem. And, and, and by the way, the biggest investor who's got two people on the board, they should know this company well, doesn't want it to happen. So SoftBank is clearly somebody at SoftBank is leaking this. And then there's the question of why. Why would SoftBank be torpedoing its own portfolio company? And the best explanation I've come up with, or at least the one that everybody affiliated with WeWork, those who support Adam, those who don't, uh, everybody seems to believe is a SoftBank. This goes back to Vision Fund, which is if this goes public and it goes public, say, at a valuation, uh, I'm going to make this number up now, of $15 because now they were getting investor feedback. This thing's not going at 49. It's probably not going at 20. Down to 20, down to 15. If it goes public at 15, SoftBank then is obligated to revalue its existing yeah. shares in WeWork. And what does that do? It means when you're going to the Saudis or to yeah. Apple or whoever yeah. else, our IRR on our existing fund has gotten a lot lower because you said earlier, this is one of the biggest investments there. It is. Yeah. It has a significant, any valuation change has a significant change to SoftBank. And remember, SoftBank had previously marked it up to $49 billion. It had done an insider deal. It marked it up on its own. So the, the reduction would have been massive. Yeah, and it they, would have cratered. They've got absolutely. They've got seven, eight billion in because they they continue to put in more convertible notes too. There's a lot of money in, but it, and again, just yeah, and the value of it, it just would have been they had marked it up themselves. If they had just kept it at cost, things would have maybe been a little bit better. But yeah, it leaks it leaks out and it becomes a, a cavalcade, and eventually Adam leaves. But because then there was again there was first talk SoftBank wants the IPO not to happen. Then SoftBank thinks Adam Newman should leave. Well, Adam's not leaking that. There's no reason for anybody else to be. Um, yeah, SoftBank's leaking that. Yeah. Wow. So the net of all of this is that... Uh, I should say for the record, SoftBank says they didn't leak it. <laughs> there, we, there we have it. We don't know who did. Somebody did. The net of all of this is that the company is now running really, really on fumes. Uh, Shockingly low on cash because they remember how much money they were planning to get. They're looking to bring in $3 billion via the IPO. And then they had also agreed JP Morgan had arranged a massive $6 billion debt package, which was concurrent to the IPO. So we work... In, in whatever it is in August, looks at its balance sheet and says, we're running really low on cash. But come end of September, we're going to have $9 billion. And they had yeah. banked that in their brains and in their models. And at that point, if you got $9 billion coming in September, spend. And by the way, really spend because wouldn't it be great if we go public right after Labor Day then five weeks later, we can come out with Q3 financials, which show massive growth. And so let's goose the growth now. Yeah, yeah. So I think, Dan, you had reported... Something's got to happen by Thanksgiving because they're going to hit. And I zero. overstated it. I, I I heard by Thanksgiving, uh, but apparently they would have been out of cash by the end of next week. Although it is unclear how much of that's related to severance, et cetera, they were going to have to pay to these thousands of people they're laying off. But yeah, they they were they were almost out of money. They need money. So yesterday, as we sit here, the outcome of this is announced. SoftBank is acquiring the company. Without acquiring, without control, actually, which no one can explain to me. Still, <laughs> including SoftBank, so no one can explain. So this. let's walk through what that package looks like. So SoftBank is going to well, first of all, uh, to get Adam to step aside uh, from the board position, they are uh, paying him one hundred and seventy-five, hundred eighty-five million, one hundred eighty-five million dollar consulting three, fee, a quote consulting fee, which gives them three things. Adam gives up his uh, super voting shares. Adam steps down as executive chairman, and those are the two official things. The unofficial thing is he votes for the deal. There, yeah. There's a there's an alternative package, and there's questions about how real it was, but there's an alternative package led by J.P. Morgan. It includes things like Starwood, Barry Sternlich, who's a you know a serious real estate investor. Mm -hmm. There's an alternative package. There are people on the board who prefer that package because they think it leads to IPO quicker. 
But Adam, again, didn't give up the voting control. So Adam gets to decide and he takes a $185 million bribe, which his people say is in the best interest of the company, of the employees, because there's a tender offer as a piece of this, which you'll discuss. But yeah, they pay him off. And by the way, what a remarkable thing to learn. If you are an activist investor like Elliot, who spends all this time, for example, with AT&T, like working with small shareholders and stuff to convince the board to maybe vote. I wonder if Paul Singer has ever thought, what if I just gave the independent directors $10 million each? Wouldn't that be faster, easier and buy their votes? It's unclear at this moment if that's illegal, because to be honest, from what I can tell him, so long as you can have a defensible fiduciary argument in this. Yeah. He's going to be a consultant to the company. They're going to ask his advice. I asked somebody within WeWork, is this legal? And they said, we can't tell. And then said, because no one really considered this, right? Like, I don't know. Like, and the way he said it to me was, he said, we also don't have anything in there. What happens if we learn that like WeWork can actually work well on Mars? It's not in the documents. We didn't (laughs) think about it. I think the only guaranteed outcome here is that uh, the SEC is going to have lots of oh. job openings and guaranteed like employment, you know, for <laughs> for a number of years, at least the New York office of the SEC. Well, there's so, going to be a lot of unemployed so we work people to go there. Let's go through the rest of the package because in addition to that $185 million consulting agreement, they are doing a tender offer of $3 billion. So uh, to Adam and anybody else at the company. And investors at $19.19 a share, which goes back from a valuation perspective years, you know, four years, three years. Right. So that's, it's looking like about a billion of that will buy Adam's shares. Up to a billion. He doesn't necessarily have to sell it all. It's hard to imagine he won't, but in theory, he doesn't have to. So interestingly, you pointed on that 1919 number. Um, that that strike price, if you go back to the last time that the stock was valued around there, you brought this up earlier, was around 2014, which was around the time when uh, WeWork had about 1,000 employees. So 14,000 of the 15,000 employees have been issued stock options that are underwater. It's what we think. I mean, as, as we discussed before the show, there's a, I mean, valuation stuff. There's a 409A valuation, which is what sh- shares are really valued at. Right. And that's different than the official price. So it's possible there's another thousand that, but even 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 if you're slightly in the money, there are taxes on top of this. You yeah. weren't expecting this. So a lot of people might not have exercised options. And if you deal with this stuff, you realize that if you haven't exercised your options, you're actually paying a higher tax rate than people who did a year ago. Yep. And, and I have been told there are certain people who got actual stock grants, which is different than options, just were handed stock basically free uh, in, in lieu of cash. I, ha- I doubt that was very much. If that existed, those people are in the money. But look, no, most people who've joined WeWork yeah. in the last couple of years who a couple months ago, honestly, might have been taking out mortgages, might have been taking yeah. out loans. Why wouldn't you, right? Really You've got a $49 billion company. Any bank would loan against that yeah. or at least loan something against that. And they are they are two things. They they get nothing out of that financially. And thousands of them are literally going to be out God of work. Jobs. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they don't get nothing for their stock and they don't even have paychecks. They'll get some severance, but not much. Really sad. The last component of this deal is a $500 million loan um, to Adam. I'm sorry, this, th- there's a couple more parts of this deal. The $500 million loan to Adam personally from SoftBank Corp which off will, of their freaking balance sheet. Which he will use to basically repay his loans to JP Morgan. And then a $1.5 billion investment at a share price of around $11. So somehow there are two different... The, the, and that values the company at $8 billion. Uh I believe. Uh, I'm, I think in the end, oh, no, money is a little bit over 10, I believe. But again, it is so convoluted, no one yeah. really quite knows. And I think at this point, you could say that the 
the old valuation models that we use for most of these companies, right? It's the value of this is Series A, value of this. Right. I think is all just out the freaking window at this point. So this gets to the market discovery or the the price discovery problem that I alluded to earlier. When you have only one party who can buy and the leverage keeps swinging all over the place, they just keep valuing it up, down, up, down, all these different places depending yeah. on no this specific moment in time. We work shares. Yeah, there's there's no way to ascertain what the price should be because there's only one party that can and is willing to and keeps buying. Yeah, it's wild. And and then the final piece, because we kept saying that they bought the company, except they say they didn't. Uh, they have a majority stake in the company, but they claim they will not control the votes on the board. And the way they say they get to that is they are going to significantly expand the board. But when you ask them, uh, okay, what's the size of the board? And then most importantly, who's going to appoint those new board members? There are no answers. When you ask WeWork, internal official spokesperson for WeWork, internal, you ask her that. She said, she said to me yesterday, she said, call SoftBank. I said, why would I call SoftBank if SoftBank's not the one who's controlling this? Call SoftBank. Uh, when you call SoftBank, uh, we haven't either, I don't know if it was we haven't determined or no comment, but I mean, look, they're, for whatever reason, they're claiming they're not controlling this. They're in charge. They should be. They own most of the company. They own most of the shares. And whether or not most of those board members are salaried SoftBank employees or not, they're going to be beholden yeah. to SoftBank or in some way related. To okay, them. so this is the last piece, which conveniently is acquisition category on this show. Why is SoftBank doing this? Here's here's my thoughts. There, are, I think there are two reasons. One, I can't remember where I read, but I didn't come up with this idea, is uh, CFIUS, uh, mm. the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US. SoftBank is, of course, a foreign entity. They're a Japanese company. Now they would be buying... Uh, control of a U.S. company. They've had issues with Cepheus in the past. Mm, so, uh, probably, so this yeah. just like short circuits that. That could be a risk to the deal. Say, oh, we don't actually own it, so we don't have to go through Cepheus. I don't think that covers, because even a minority stake, for example, they had to go through Cepheus for their Uber deal. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that's the real reason. I think the real reason is I don't think they want to... I'm Pure speculation. I don't think SoftBank wants to consolidate WeWork's financials on their balance sheet. No way. Because, now remember, the balance sheet of this company is enormous liabilities of all these leases. SoftBank has a lot of debt that they have taken out at the corporate entity. Remember, they're a telecom provider. They have debt. That debt is basically junk bond rated status. They're one of the most highly leveraged companies that exists. Look at it. They would make a private equity person blush. Exactly. And so now (laughs) if they all of a sudden consolidate this balance sheet, jack up the liabilities on the balance sheet, that's going to torpedo their debt ratings at the corporate level. That's going to increase their cost of capital hugely. That's terrible for the company. So I think they're doing all these gymnastics to A, to avoid that happening, but then B, why do all these gymnastics? Then you get back to the Vision Fund. And at this point, I don't even think it's about raising Vision Fund 2. I think it's about just trying to salvage Vision Fund 1. They can't let WeWork go to zero because the alternative here is WeWork dies. WeWork is going to die, as you said, in like a month. The JP Morgan thing outstanding. I mean, look, the thing that's interesting, there's a bunch of, I mean, this is still a real business, right? This isn't, yeah. you know, I, yep. I've seen, oh, this is the next Theranos. No, Theranos no. Didn't, had a product that didn't work. This has a product that works. It's still, you know, like, go Their to revenues. any city. There are people who walked, in, went to work this morning to WeWork and not who work for WeWork. Lots of them. They have real buildings. Those buildings still exist, all that stuff. There will still be thousands of employees left yep. even after the massive layoffs. Uh, obviously, certain facilities will close that are underperforming. Uh, obviously, expansion slows down. Um, but it is a real business. I, I will say that, Masa, the, the word SoftBank isn't arbitrary, right? Soft is the software piece, right? I, I believe I'm a tech visionary, but the bank part is important too. He is a financier. So the stuff you said yeah. about, you know, the balance sheet, that's all real. I will say that I will bet 
that SoftBank still believes long-term there can be a business here. The one thing yeah. about Masayoshi Son is that I've always found fascinating is he made an enormous amount of money uh, in the dot-com boom. Huge money. In fact, I saw him sitting next to Bill Gates at one point, and he said to Bill Gates, he said, at one point, he said, in the late yeah, 90s, he I was richer than you. He said, <laughs> two weeks later, I was broke. Uh, and that's true. And what happens to most people who went through that, the dot-com boom, Mark Andreessen always talks about how people who went through that are too risk-averse. That's true, usually. You are, because you 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 were so scarred by it. Masa went the other way. Masa decided to take all that risk again, and he he, yeah. he caught the Alibaba train, and he did great with it. But like most, And then he decided to go over the top. That's why he's so unusual. And I would say with this, he might look at it and say, things are really bad right now, but there is a business. I still mm -hmm. believe in the thesis of the business. Yep. Maybe the management got, got away from us. If I can get in what I believe is relatively cheap and control this thing, maybe we can make a go with this. So here's my attempt to put a bow on the whole thing, which is, you know, we talked about this in the Vision Fund episode. This is the largest fund of any type, any asset class raised ever, masquerading as a venture capital fund. Well, wait, that doesn't make sense. Venture capital funds shouldn't be bigger than private equity funds. Is this an unmasking of the Vision Fund for what it is, is a private equity fund? And when you look at this, gosh, they just made a $1.5 billion equity purchase that now has them owning a majority of the company. Oh, and they, they levered a $5 billion of debt on top of it. Wait a minute. I've seen this playbook before. And they paid, a CEO, a, buyout firm. And they paid a CEO to go away, which is a very private equity leveraged buyout thing to do. Totally. So now all of a sudden, like... Yes, you've now taken out the time frame of which they're going to realize returns on this asset. But if they can turn this around, turn it into you know what it does still have the potential to be, not the same kind of business everyone thought it was, but a good business and a big one yep. with real estate assets all around the world. Well, now maybe they just saved the vision fund. I mean, I, I will say, I, I will say though, there is an ongoing question of why they didn't let J.P. Morgan do the bailout. Like, I almost get the sense that J.P. Morgan looked at this and said, with SoftBank's deal. All right. If you want this problem, your problem. Take it. Like I, 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 it was almost like a hot potato. I don't quite understand why SoftBank was willing to catch that. What? Because again, J.P. Morgan was going. Now you could argue it would have been too much debt, and the company would have sunk under the debt. You could yeah. make that argument, but it was money. It was money. Yeah. It was a. It was. It was lifeline. It was runway. This brings us to uh, what we normally call what would have happened otherwise. This episode, I'm going to call the bizarro world we work. We've got this comp. It's IWG. Last year, they did $3.3 billion in revenue. This business ends up looking a lot like we work at maturity. Um, that was profitable, $200 million in operating profit. Their market cap is about $4.6 billion. So we're getting close to the neighborhood of where you know, you're basically buying a business that looks like IWG. You run that for a while, it's going to be you know profitable for you. So... I, look, hey, great private equity pickup. I, exactly, exactly, exactly. All right, well, let's bring this home. So, WeWork is in a place now where they have six and a half billion in the company, some debt, some equity. We sit here today, we will see if that is enough to have them figure it out over the next year, maybe IPO at some point. We don't know what the future will hold. What we're going to grade here today is SoftBank's pseudo acquisition here of WeWork. Woo! Um, <laughs> I'm gonna give them a a a, a B minus. Uh, the 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 low part is for why exactly. Again, I think they should let J P Morgan probably take it. But man, they were creative. Like yeah. you, you deserve something can't. for like you might have gotten to the wrong answer, but you got there in a fascinating way. So. You really can't knock the hustle here. No. And by the way, remember they wanted control of this company a year ago. They got it, even though they didn't officially get it. They got it for a lot less money too. So SoftBank Corp has put in. The $2 billion from earlier this year, 
and now another one and a half billion in equity capital. So the corporation themselves outside well, plus of the, the three billion tender, that's equity. They're buying it from shareholders, but that's new equity. They're yep, buying. Yeah. Good point. So they've spent, what's that? Six and a half billion dollars to own a majority of this company. Now, the the vision fund poured eight billion dollars in and the the business isn't even worth the combined amount of that but if you look at what softbank did they made a bunch of management fees off the vision fund and paid six and a half billion dollars to own an asset that's probably worth about six and a half billion dollars i'll give one the one counter so maybe i would give a lower grade would be it's unclear who runs this they've spent a lot of money without having a ceo there are there's these co-ceos uh who are there sebastian gunningham and artie minson who we talked yep. about earlier it remains unclear if they are staying or not. Uh, maybe they're getting a good deal of cash to stick around. That's unclear. They've put Marcelo Clore, the CEO of Sprint, in yep. as executive chairman, which is mind-numbingly strange, mainly because Massa said, well, we're going to originally we're going to bring Marcelo in so we can figure out what's really happening inside the company. Again, you had two directors. What? Where, where, what were they doing and why do they still have jobs if they couldn't figure those basics out? But like, but, but Marcelo is a telecom guy yep. there. Do they believe these two are the right horses or not? That's unclear. It's a lot of money to spend without knowing who's really going to be running it in six months. I'm in for your B minus David. Where are you? It's so hard to conflate. I think just like this story has illustrated all of these series of decisions along the way. By everybody involved, many of whom were like, many of which decisions were terrible decisions. I think it's why, like in the beginning, we framed this as like this is a tragedy. Like this is the sum of the system that has created this. So now, if we're to grade specifically this decision by SoftBank, um, I think there's. If you're on the fence, take employee sentiment into it. Yeah. They have to own this thing, and they have some very angry people working yeah, there right now. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think. I'm in for the B minus for slightly different reasons, which is the reason it's that high is this is a save, like, because this was going to go to zero. Yeah. Uh, if maybe the JP Morgan thing would happen, maybe it wouldn't. So it's saved. But on the other hand, there's a very strong case to be made that this is throwing good money after bad. Uh, yep. So, um, you know, and that's, that's never a good position to be in. So, yeah, B minus. There we are. We'll, we'll check in in a year or so. I'm sure we will. Well, if the cash lasts that long. Listeners, thank you for going on this journey with us. Um, Dan, where can listeners find you? Oh, at Axios.com. Uh, you can get my daily Prorata newsletter at signup.axios.com or just type Axios Prorata into your podcast thing because we've got a daily podcast as well. And I will say Prorata is excellent. Like oh, I, much of the details that we've gotten over the last few years about this company have been uh, that, that pro rata is the first thing that I read when I wake up in the morning. So thank you for Ditto. for doing that. Appreciate you, it. It's the first thing I write when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> awesome. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, 
wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, listeners, if you want to hear more Acquired, feel free to subscribe from wherever you are listening to this one. Um, And if you're looking for another episode to listen to, we did a SoftBank Vision Fund episode uh, earlier this year, last year, something like that. Search SoftBank in your your, uh, Acquired feed. With that, listeners, we will see you next time.